Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Jenna Kelly as she explores the lasting psychological and emotional bonds between individuals. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network and join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. Hey there, Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly, and I'm really excited to share this next conversation with you because I had the very cool chance to sit down and better get to know Diego Ballon and her husband, Yanir Ballon. They're this dynamic duo husband and wife team who just co-authored a new book called Rewrite, a trauma workbook of creative writing and recovery in our new normal. And individually, they are also such impressive people. Diego is an author and psychotherapist specializing in intergenerational trauma. She's worked in New York City, you know, really specializing in populations that are often under-resourced or overlooked and now works in the Bay Area where she continues to do her private practice. And she was born in Germany, raised in Istanbul. So her upbringing really provides her with this fresh perspective and unique perspective on how to navigate tension between cultures and adverse childhood experiences, attachment, and also really ending on a note of hope and resilience. Her husband, Yanair, is a board-certified psychiatrist, best-selling author, of this book and also a big book of emergency department psychiatry. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and is currently the vice president of behavioral health and medical specialty services for a major healthcare organization. So as you can see, these are these are two very impressive and knowledgeable and skillful people that I get to sit down with and hearing the, about this book and that it was really kind of born out of their own stress and ways of coping in the pandemic and offers of, uh, readers a chance to utilize it for their own healing as well. And then they can use it on their own. They can use it with a therapist. It, there's so many practical applications included in this interview. So sit back and enjoy. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Well, hello, Dewey Goo and Yanair. Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am so honored to be joining both of you today in the conversation. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So I have your new book here. It's called Rewrite a trauma workbook of creative writing and recovery in our new normal. And I have it all underlined and marked up and highlighted. And I've also um, engaged in some of the writing prompts that you offer in the book. It really is such a gift that the two of you have put out to the world. So I can't wait to talk more about it with our listeners and viewers. But before we do, I'd also like to bring more of each of you into our conversation and It always starts with attachment. So I would invite each of you to please share an attachment memory that, you know, just feels important right now in your work and maybe even the why of this book. So Duigu, can I start with you? Sure. Uh, So for me, in terms of attachment, I come from a family uh, that has moved around in the world a lot. We lived in uh, many different countries and my, uh, both my parents actually grew up like that as well. So they grew up having to adjust to different cultures and different political situations in in Turkey. And it was um, for me that just of the idea of, you know, the world constantly changing, the world around me constantly changing. And sometimes to the point that I couldn't even communicate, didn't speak the language of the uh, places that I first moved in. And for the constant to always be my parents and to always feel a sense of belonging to them and the idea of, you know, home is where people who love you are. That was just a really powerful uh, drive for me. And I think it was in many ways the reason why I do what I do and the reason why this book emerged as well. 
Mm. Beautiful. Yes. That secure base, especially with so many changing variables. It sounds like your, your childhood is very fascinating moving around a lot and experiencing a lot of different cultures, but how that can also be, be stressful and disorienting. And so to have that secure base, that anchor, um, you know, is so important. So thank you for sharing that. What about you, Yanair? So similar, right? So we, we met when we were in Istanbul, when we were in, in middle school and high school. And so we've known each other for a while, but but the, our paths are, are similar in, in, in a way that, you know, I, I was born in America, but my parents are, you know, Turkish, first generation immigrants to this country. And this is, you know, late 70s. And uh, we had nobody here, very small family, you know, very, very small family as it is. And so the, you know, when I, even before we moved specifically to, to Istanbul, uh, it was being able to blend in. And, and it didn't sort of come to me as an attachment sort of within that framework until, you know, many years and many, many hours of my own personal therapy later to realize sort of the ability to connect with folks almost like, and we talk, I think we talk about this in Rewrite or, or maybe in, in, in some of other other writing of, of a superpower, being able to connect with others and being able to feel comfortable enough within your family system and then being able to blend in with pe- people from, as we were saying, different religions, different cultures, different uh, languages, and being able to say, hey, how do I find the folks that I feel uh, comfortable with, even though they're not directly my family? And and that was something that, you know, my mother and my father taught me and taught us. And, you know, we have I have two other siblings to be able to then feel comfortable enough, secure enough, if you will, to be able to then make those connections and form those relationships. And that's something that, you know, and one of the the big sort of reasons why why Doug and I put this put this book together was, you know, to create this artifact for our son and for our son's generation. He's 11 now to be able to have something to see sort of the, the the difficulties and the challenges that we face and how we look at the world right now in the context of the last several years of the pandemic and how the world changed, but then also to be able to say, how do you then understand yourself within those relationships? And so that's something that was uh, uh, very near and dear dear to my heart, but obviously doing it knows my And also about <laughs> the similarity of the human condition. So we, we talk about the differences and adjusting to different cultures and different uh, ethnicities and, and, and religious background, but then also to see how, you know, humans, the urge of humans and the drive of humans ultimately is the same. We all want to be loved. We all want to be seen. We all want to be in connection to other humans. And this, I think, is the similarity of this is just so important to um, internalize and understand. Yes. Yes. That sense of belonging, starting both, you know, internally within your own family of origins, and then how do you extend that out into other relationships? And especially since both of you did that in in such interesting ways, in this kind of multicultural way, it sounds like both of you had this this solid foundation that helped you do that. And we're going to talk more about this from a cultural lens too, because I love how how you included that in your book. It's so much, I think, of who you are. So it's coming out now already and also in in the book. Um, So help us understand a little bit more about the intention of the book. What was it like to write it, especially as as partners together? What, What was that experience like? Um, so the, initially it started because during the pandemic, the need for mental health services was so much amplified. And I saw that in my own work as well. So uh, in terms of extending the therapeutic session beyond the 50 minutes, I started to incorporate a lot of writing exercises with my clients. And writing exercises on its own uh, weren't really enough because it was such a uh, you know difficult time. And a lot of people were operating with fear and anxiety. So it just felt really important to also have have some tools to help people regulate their nervous system because unless our nervous system is regulated, we can't really go deeper into our emotions. We can't really process our emotions. So that's how this started when I started to use it with my clients. And then it eventually turned into a book. Also, um, I was just noticing so many people were spending so much time with themselves and all the extracurricular activities and social networks weren't really accessible. So people were just doing a lot of self-diagnosis. They were just going online uh, on social media and researching their symptoms, which can be really misleading. So I also wanted to weave in some theoretical information about trauma and with tools uh, of how to heal themselves so that it there was some kind of base, some uh, ground that they could understand and make meaning of the things that they were going through. And um, 
that's how the idea started and writing together was mostly fun uh, <laughs> yes we it, yes. and it, it actually helped us because it, it for the, the pandemic was of course very hard for us too uh, as we mentioned our families are still in Istanbul so that the distance just all of a sudden was so much bigger and it, it was also you know parents are aging so it, get, it had this helplessness feeling where oh if something happens I can't go I can't be there I can't support mm-hmm. my family so it distracted us and gave us something to do um that felt meaningful and that you know was hopeful uh and something towards healing that we had purpose we also did watch a lot of uh shows mm-hmm. um but uh, and it was kind of like um passing each other like yeah. writing writing a lot like writing a section and then passing it to each other edit and then um sometimes it it, it was got funny and then <laughs> sometimes it got a little stressful a lot, that's a lot of editing <laughs> a lot, of, editing, <laughs> a lot sure. of back and forth so yeah that's how, how would you say the writing process I, was so the, i mean that was the process itself was a lot of fun I, you know and, and to, to your earlier question jen I, I i think you know the theory part is what you know what Duga was describing, but really, when you look even at the first couple pages, where we where we talk with the dedication piece and the acknowledgement section, where early, very early on in in the pandemic, right, twenty twenty, where you know we're in California, we've got no family here, it's just me, her, and our and our son. Uh, so it's three years ago, so he's eleven now, so you know three three years younger, and we're just looking at each other like, what do you do, right? And and it was mm-hmm. that fear, that hopelessness, that that helplessness, that extreme extreme anxiety. And our, our, well, you know, as we start, as the book sort of started to form, it was like we started to reflect who did we call and who picked up, right? Mm-hmm. Who did we pick up the phone? Like, who, who, and we're like, hey, I need help. So, who was, I mean, we, you know, thankfully, uh, many people in our networks, et cetera. But who did we actually choose to call to say, like, hey, what do I do about school? What do I do about family? What do I do about yeah. the housing situation, whatever? And, and then work and, and everything else. And then who actually picked up? And those are the folks that we have in the dedication and the acknowledgement piece to say, and this is something that we talk about as well throughout the book in terms of who do you have, and we talk about this in the safety planning section a lot, but who do you have in your life that you can actually call that will pick up, that will help you, you know, with what you need to do, not give them, you know, give you your own advice. And so that was a critical piece too, for us to look at each other and say, what are our values? And we can talk about that later. What are, and who do we have around us. And so very quickly, just like, you know, all the other external support structures that Dugo was mentioning disappeared overnight. We also then realized that, you know, people were stuck in their own minds and so who had the availability. And so creating something that allows for people to reflect on that was, uh, was a, you know, really a key part of, of why we did this. Mm. Well, thank you for offering that deeper understanding into the why of this book, I think that really gives readers a better a better sense of the context and where it was coming from. And you you can really feel that in your writing. And what's also interesting listening to both of you describe that is almost like this parallel healing process that you had with it. Not that it didn't come with its own stresses and challenges, but that's part of it too. I mean, nothing we do in life, you know, does comes without that. And so it's like this parallel of you also experiencing some, some make how to make meaning of this very stressful time during the pandemic and how to find healing through writing, because you offer so many beautiful writing prompts in this, in this book as, as a way to kind of a portal into some, you know, of our own opportunities to gain more self-awareness and healing too. So I love the parallels. Thank you. Um, so if, you know, the other thing, and you kind of touched on this, you know, is this book, I think could be like a college textbook on um, the different types of trauma, the different types of trauma therapy, you guys really, you know, reference all the research on on that as well. So it, it it's got these broad applications to that, like I said, could be probably used as a college textbook, but also with clinicians and clinicians could use this in therapy with their clients and then also for people to use on their own if they would like and for and for families um, to also use together. So I love the broad application. I think for our listeners and viewers, it would be really good to kind of hone in on attachment trauma specifically 
And so uh, I wonder if you could define for us or just help us better understand what attachment trauma is. And we also offered this um, in our podcast Facebook group. I asked, I told our our members that I was going to be interviewing both of you and asked if they had any questions for you. And that was one of the questions is what does that attachment trauma look like? What might some of the signs and symptoms um, be in an adult um, who has attachment trauma? And then how does that impact the relationship with the child? Mm-hmm. So in a very simple way, attachment uh, is secure attachment is when the child feels trusted, uh, trust and love um, to, to, to the caregiver. So um, when the child knows that the caregiver is going to protect them, the parent, uh, and also knows that they are loved unconditionally, then the child can venture out into other activities, explore the world, get curious and venture into uh, other relationships relationships. When the relationship isn't secure, then the child constantly is spending energy on seeking approval, on navigating the parents or the caregiver's emotional landscape and arranging her or his own landscape according to according to the caregiver. And instead of spending their energy to growing and do, go, moving through developmental tasks, they are in somewhat a survival mode and somewhat in a, in a mode of, am I going to be safe? Uh, who's going to protect me? Am I loved? So that is um, the attachment wounding is broadly speaking, uh, this feeling of not feeling safe or not feeling worthy of being loved. Um, and this can be in many different ways. It can be in being from emotionally unavailable parents or highly critical parents or outright very abusive parents, absent parents. So this, there's a, many different um, scenarios and stories, of course, but in its core, it's the feeling of um, w- w- I don't deserve to be loved or I deserve all the bad things are happening are happening because I am um, you know, damaged because children Children are actually very egocentric. They're not. They don't have the cognitive cognitive um, tools to understand what's happening and make meaning. So a lot they internalize a lot of the things. So a lot of everything happens to them and because of them. So um, it just becomes the narrative and belief system of who they are. Yes. Yes. My needs don't matter, and I have to attend to the needs of my parent or caregiver. And and that it's a great lead into you talk a lot about intergenerational trauma in this book as well. And I know that's something that you have focused specifically on in your work. Do you do a goo? So I wonder, you know, intergenerational trauma from an attachment perspective, we're really talking about how those attachment patterns get passed down. And so what have you seen in your own work about this? And especially when the adult and caregiver does does their own healing. Mm-hmm. So I, I I always say, and for me, it's uh, very important that it's the parents' responsibility to do their own healing. Our childhoods and our childhood experiences, our traumas are not an excuse for poor parenting. Uh, and it, parenting is a very difficult task. It comes with a lot of sacrifices and there are losses. And I don't think there's enough conversation about the challenges of parenting. And I think it's really important for the parent to be allowed to grieve the losses and uh, come to terms with the sacrifices so the burden isn't passed on to the children. And um, it's it's equally important for the parent to understand their own attachment woundings and their own attachment dynamics and patterns and traumas so that they can because the goal is to do something different. The goal is to move our generations to more secure attachment, to safer, warmer connections. Um, and this is not just limited to personal trauma and personal attachment woundings. It's also society's understanding of what it means to be a parent, for instance, or what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a man and and the roles that come with it that are also passed on from generation to generation, which is why it's so important to understand these narratives, these belief systems and what we're what we're teaching our children. For instance, you know, uh, for a woman, if the uh, belief system is uh, a woman uh, can't be too loud or can't uh, make too much noise or can't take too much space, can't mm-hmm. be too successful. 
then you, uh, we are passing these belief systems to our children in the way that we are living, in the way that we are setting expectations for them. And it's just so important to know what these are so that we can pass on uh, belief systems that are much more constructive. Mm. Yes. I love how you describe that and how the parents own healing is really their responsibility. And when they bring more awareness, compassion to those narratives, then it's a chance to disrupt that and to pass on something different, but it's not, it's not easy. Um, and that's why I love this book because there's, there's so many tools in it. Um, and so I think that would, you know, chapter seven, there's so many great chapters, but for, especially for our listeners, I think they'd be really intrigued with the chapter seven, which is on family, children, and resilience. And so can you, can you continue to elaborate on why this chapter was so important and maybe some of the tools that you use that can strengthen that parent-child relationship and that can also be used with families? Certainly. And no, thank you so much for, for your detailed analysis of, of the book and, and the chapters. I, you know, that was, I think, the the chapter that, that started the, the work, the, the book itself, where, you know, really the, the, the heart of, of our uh, of our uh, thesis, if you will, of, of looking specifically at what our values are. Right. So this is the first year of the pandemic. We're thinking about what's going on in our lives, who's you know around us, how do we interact with one another and what choices do we have right now? We're locked down. We can't go anywhere. We don't know what's happening. Every decision is based on fear. And we know this through our training, you know, in, in med school and residency and, you know, many, many years of training and taking care of patients and emergency rooms and community clinics and crisis and prior practice. And so throughout sort of that range, we know not to make a decision when there's a fear mode or when there's a huge life changing incident. So we have, that was already ingrained in us. Don't buy a house, don't sell a house, don't get married, don't get don't get a divorce, don't buy a car, don't do any big sort of things in a crisis mode. The problem was we didn't know, nobody knew how long this was going to last. So how long is this crisis mode going to be? And what choices do we have? What choices for escaping do we have? What choices of being present do we have? What choices of even just being with one another? I mean, thankfully, we have a, a nice house, but it's, you know, it gets, it feels very small very quickly. There was a there was a meme very big early in the beginning where she likes Texas. She's like, I literally can hear you blinking, right? It was just like, and I'm like in like the other room, like, you know, it's, it's, right after a while, everyone's are so close to one another. It's like yeah. the blinking sort of interrupts. Also, one we're using the whole house. Yeah. We're just yeah. using everything and all the, you know, the dining table is also a work table and a homework yes. table and an art table. And <laughs> there's just so much, there was so much stuff, like everything, you know, in our regular life before we all went out, we all came back. But when mm-hmm. we're home all the time, then it's just there's just so much constantly cleaning up. And um... <laughs> so, so we're looking at each other and, and we're thinking, OK, what what do we need to establish? Right. And, and kind of make it regimented, because that's sort of the way I I you know deal with my own sort of needs, let's call them anxieties. And so it's like, OK, what are our values? Like what 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 is important for us? What, what's like critically important for us as me, you know, as you know, as the husband, the dad you know, and, and her in her roles and then with our son. And we. Uh, we put together this uh, the family crest, right? So, so basically, what it is is uh, a blank. We have a blank one, and then we have the example that it was a real example that we actually put together, and we talk about the process. But long and short of it is, is it's you know an area where you can either draw if you're you know don't want to write down stuff or if you can't write, uh, but then also be able to think about this together. Like, what are your values? And so for us, we said we like uh, board games, right? And we like love. We like humor and laughing, right? That's a big part of our of our lives. We like the theater, right? We're Turkish. So that's a big part of our identity. We're, we're grateful. And we've always been practicing gratitude as, as just the way that we look at the world. And so slowly that crest started to come with one to, together, right? We, the hard work piece, we had like the, a picture of a bee and the honeycomb and, and the gaming piece and the bravery, we put a dragon and it was, you know, silly sort of, you know, uh, hand drawings with a pencil, but you know, we have that in the book, but you can sort of do it however you want to really then have that. Then we, we took it, literally put it on the fridge, what we put, put up and we said, okay, these are our values. This is sort of who we are as a family right? The Balan family. And, you know, it, it can be fluid. It can change, obviously. But when there's a stressor, when there's something that we're trying to think about, okay, does it match up with our values? And 
this, I mean, it might sound cheesy, but it worked. It really worked. And it, and it took a lot of time. It took a lot of energy. And so many times we're like, ah, oh, this is just weird. No one's going to do it. It's, it's, we, we, you know, it's just weird. It doesn't feel sort of right. But then we're thinking, going back in history, people have the, those shields and those family crests and all that stuff. And, and there's a reason, even flags of different countries, there's a reason to have that. And you know, we shared this, obviously, in our book. And we encourage folks to do it in our practices and, and when we talk with, with families. And, and so that was one, one big uh, uh, example. And, and that includes many prompts as well so that you can do with kids you know very very young kids as well as you know anyone that's you know throughout throughout their uh you know span of their ages and so uh that, that was something that's fun and I, I definitely encourage people to just at least look at that or even just even if you don't you know look at it just think about what are your own values individually and then when you bring that up in a conversation it's like yeah i knew most of your values but huh and we've been together for you know, 20 plus years and you know mm-hmm. and still there's stuff that like in the current context right and that's why we've been wrote about it in our new normal in our current context what are our values, right? And so that's sort of the the twist on the challenge. Yeah, it really sounds like it's a way to increase attachments and do something together that that takes you kind of out of our prefrontal cortex and just seeing what what happens when we all work on this collectively, and then we have this this you know it, it's both about the process and the product, right? We, it's the process together of creating. And then we have this representation of, of what, who we are as a family. So cheesy or not, I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and so can you share more with us? You, you kind of mentioned how you can use it with, with children as well. Uh, it, the book talks a lot about the Balan method, the three, two, one method. Um, I think it'd be really helpful for our, our listeners and viewers to also understand what, what that is as a practical tool. And again, how can that apply to the parenting and caregiving relationships? Uh, so the, as I as I mentioned uh, initially, the uh, Balance 3 to 1 method is very much um, because of the uh, pandemic and the stress that was caused. And I had a hard time um, figuring out ways to uh, get people actually right in a meaningful way without being under a stress kind of uh, uh, alarm mode. Uh, so it focuses, the first step is the focus on body and uh, relaxation techniques and just noticing where we have tension, like is our, is our jaw clenched, you know, or uh, are we arching our backs, like these kind of, uh, and then uh, also focusing on breath, because when we are uh, in alarm then uh, mode, in survival mode, we're not really breathing deeply. We only breathe deep when we're actually calm. So a way of calming our nervous system is by paying attention to our breathing. So these kind of things, and also making the experience uh, comfortable and cozy as you know many people were stuck in their homes just choosing a place that feels welcoming and adding certain things that are soothing whether it's a candle or some music these kind of practices that are just going to carve out that moment and that time and space for yourself uh, which as for parents is such an important thing to do and such a neglected neglected thing to do to mm-hmm. actually carve out this is my time this is my space and and that has so much, so many benefits, but it's the easiest thing to just cut out of the day to day, right? The easiest thing is to cut out mom's self-care time or dad's self-care time. So uh, so that's why I wanted to make sure that that was uh, clear. And then um, also to have a writing prompt. And the writing prompts are just initiations. They're just, uh, I, I never encourage people to ha- feel like they have to stick to this writing prompt because whatever needs to come out comes out through it. And if we're free associating and going off tangent and writing about something totally different, I think it's important to celebrate that. So that means that is what needed to be said in that moment. And that's my entire goal is to just get to what needs to be expressed. And then the third uh, piece is uh, to kind of, because uh, people are doing this on their own, it's uh, important to seal the practice. So we don't want to open all our woundings and then just walk around the world open and vulnerable. We want to be able to regulate ourselves and and close the practice. So this could be an affirmation, a gratitude, or something that is just going to like a a statement, maybe a poem, something that's going to uh, say, okay, so all of this is here and I'm still paying attention 
to it and it will be here when I come back. But right now I can go on with my life. And I think this can be, this is very applicable with kids. Um, it could, instead of writing, if they're not in the age of writing, they could, it could be drawing or kids are very expressive when it comes to they, with clay or whatever your kid likes to do. It could be used, um, to, we just want the emotions to come out. We just want the uh, whatever needs to be expressed to come out. And then they could describe it. Uh, and also close their practice. We can, as parents, encourage them to close their practice with an affirmation, a decision, a plan, or something they're looking forward to, or a gratitude in the very same way that we do it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I like, again, the parallel of the when the parent offers that time to themselves that they're doing their healing, which is going to make them more present and available to the child. But then there's also, then they can do that with the child, um, especially when they've had that own, their own experience with that. The other thing I really appreciate about the book and, and as you describe it is all the compassion that you offer for, as a reminder to offer that to ourselves. Um, Like there's not one right or wrong way to do any of these tools. It's just, let's try it and pace it out. Anything else you want to say about that piece, Dewey Goo? Uh, the one thing that I f- feel important to say is, um, so w- when we're writing, uh, what we're trying to get to is the emotional responses to the event. So it's not necessarily the event itself or what happened to the details or who said what, but it's more about how that event makes you feel and how certain things around the world triggers you and reminds you of that event. So I, I, I feel like it's important to say that sometimes the details of the events can get you to the emotions of the events. So if that really feels like you need to write that if you really want to write exactly word to for word in a difficult conversation who said what then do that but i always remind people to remember that if they're focusing too much on the details of the event and the context like the cover story if you will instead of the emotions what are they not expressing like what are you not writing when when you're writing these very detailed description of uh, exactly what happened that I feel like is important to kind of coach ourselves and remember, uh, are we getting stuck in the context or are we go- able to go deeper into the emotion? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I like that, that the three, two, one, I think helps. It's an invitation to hopefully do that when we get to those writing prompts and the focus on our somatic experience too can get us out of our head and more grounded in our in our bodies and our nervous systems before before we engage in the the writing prompts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that chapter you you also talk about a case. And so I think it would be lovely just to kind of bring this more into real life. Um, and this case was called The Other Daughter. And I it's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but you also have so many other cases that that readers can can take in as well. So uh, so this one was about twin daughters that were had a very different experience in their attachment bonding with their mother. And I'm sure it's no accident that I was drawn to this case because I'm also a twin sister. And so it's like, oh, this one is very interesting. And so this mom bonds more securely and aligns more with the the daughter that looks more like her. And then this other, the other twin daughter gets, you know, to her exclusion where she feels more on the outside and then goes on to develop, you know, different coping mechanisms like overeating and, and overweight and, Twins, I think, already experienced this very high level of scrutiny in the ways that they're compared. And so to the outside world, you know, it may look like here's two twins and the one who more closely bonded with mom is probably more secure in her presentation and her regulation and in her ability to form other relationships. And then the other twin, you know, it's like, well, what's wrong with her? Why is she so different? You know, she's overweight or, you know, maybe more dysregulated or or difficult, maybe has more of a difficult time in um, developing relationships. And there's so much, backstory that we don't always understand. And again, how it starts with those attachments. So can you tell us more about this case, Duigu, and, and 
you know, especially what healing looked like? Uh, so first of all, I sibling stories, I always find really fascinating because it's such a complex relationship. So siblings are, they're not really friends, but they're the same age and they are or, or like close in age and they have the same uh, position in the, in the household. But actually it's a very complicated relationship in, in the sense that um, they might not even know each other that well, actually. So they might not... Um, but the assumption is, again, from from the society, the assumption is that siblings have to be best friends. And um, so that's why it makes it so hard to talk about these kind of uh, complicate, compli complications that happen in siblinghood uh, and the difficulty of being compared to someone. And also the, the difference in the experience. So you might grow up in the same household Actually, very commonly, people who grow up in the same household have very different stories and very different memories of their childhood. It's not the same, but it's kind of like the expectation is for it to be perceived the same. So it's just mm -hmm. so um, difficult and so complicated. And I think, again, it goes back into becoming curious about your own story. So with that particular case, I think the, the growth that I saw was certain things were uh, repeating um, so, um, right, like it, there's always that feeling of being the one who wasn't preferred for that particular person. It was always that story was always repeating at work, at partnerships. She always felt like there was somebody else that was that had, you know, better um success or better uh, outfits. And there's always that kind of like feeling of I'm less than. So getting curious about that and what kind of things triggered her feeling that like, like that, like, because these can be very subtle triggers. It could be even just a micro expression of somebody, or it could be a, a, a song or something like that. So knowing, uh, I feel like in her journey, just getting to know the triggers and piecing up the stories that led to her actually wholeness to her whole understanding of what happened and the dynamics because these dynamics are so difficult to actually distill and understand but once we do that it's easier to absorb and it's it's also important to allow for that uh, pain for because in that moment she wasn't able to express that pain when she was living in it it was um very difficult for her to even pinpoint what was going on. And then later on, when she was able to uh, understand the dynamics, she was able to also uh, feel through the grief and the, and the pain and the sadness of, um, you know, fe feeling like she was excluded. Mm -hmm. Yes. Every child in the house has a different parent, even though it's the same person, it's a different parent. And this case really illustrates that. And, you know, I love the, the descriptions of, of how she was able to gain more awareness about that experience, how that's in, then impacted her narrative and how she has a chance to rewrite that. Um, do you, do you have any sense of, if this mom was aware of what she was doing with the twins or was this happening at more of an unconscious level? That's a good question, actually. So um, I never met the mom, so it would be very hard for me to say. But in general, I think a lot of times, you know, parents don't intend to hurt their children, mm -hmm. like, especially like these kind of dynamics don't happen. Um, I, I guess it could like there, but most of the time people don't have malicious intent. Most of the time it's just their own wounding um, manifesting into more and more wounding. So, mm -hmm. and that's why it's so important to heal ourselves. And that's why it's so important to understand our stories and make meaning of our trauma and uh, take initiative initiative in changing the narrative because it just it just gets passed on our our woundings become our children's woundings in different foot ways yes i'd agree with you i think parents don't intend to to do that consciously oftentimes and how powerful it could have been for this mom to have had a book or a therapist like book like this, a therapist to help her become more aware of those patterns. But now that, that the daughter has, has 
had those opportunities. I don't know if she's a parent yet herself, but what a beautiful way for her to change her own narratives so that she can change those relationships with her own children and, and lean towards more security. So, so thank you for that, that rich example. So I would like to talk more about the cultural lens too that we we started with because I I really appreciate how this book invites us to explore our own family and community culture and to think about how cultural runes such as racism that people have experienced um, how that can be a form of of trauma. So and it sounds like your own background probably is is why you knew this was so important to include, but would love um, and maybe Yanair to hear more from you about you know, the cultural lens of this book and, and why it's so important. Sure, no, thank you. I, you know, we, we talk about very specific types of risk factors for trauma. And, and so working really backwards of, of the different groups, if you will, the different professions that are much higher risk of, of trauma, either at work or within their family systems or because of the nature of who they are or how they're perceived. And so really looking at the race piece, the ethnicity piece, the gender piece, the, the, the profession itself, like uh, uh, folks that are first responders, physicians, uh, firefighters, and, you know, uh, police officers, and and then looking then more specifically at things, especially within this country of the African-American experience, the LGBTQIA plus experience, and, and really looking at sort of the, the identity within themselves, but then also how they're uh, perceived within the, the community, and then also the, the strengths and, and access to uh, care, but also access to something like, you know, your podcast or the book or, or the ability to see a therapist like Doiga, and, and, and the ability to then understand what the value of that is before it comes to an acute crisis time. And even in acute crises, you know, this was a, a thing that we, we were sharing yesterday in, in one of the studies that came out uh, that, that Doiga was talking about where we're looking at the ability to access even in acute settings there's an there's a paucity of of ability for to care for folks in underprivileged uh, or, or you know racial and ethnic minority uh, communities even within this country and so when you look at the foundation of of the lack of care or the overlooking of of certain populations and certain areas just in general you then start to see how the communities and how the cultures then start to react to that positive or negative how do they then form their own sort of sub units their own you know either chosen tribes or forced within one another because of a racial or ethnic or religious community and then to be able to then see what are some of those strengths and what brings folks together and what do then fr- from the flip side to that is then what do you then choose once you're leaving the family unit right so we were in turkey and we chose to come to america fine what did we bring with us from that culture and then what do we sort of then adopt and adapt and bring on to ours. And so there's the concept of cultural uh, appropriation or misappropriation. That's one thing. That's that's sort of the, the judgmental sort of side of it. But really what we're talking about a lot more is just understanding what makes sense to you, understanding what makes sense to you within a relationship or a family unit, and then to be able to then say, what are the things that I appreciate from my own culture, my own upbringing, and the way that I look at the world? And the other big piece that that we talk also about is language, right? And the way to look at the world from multiple languages that defines us not only culturally, but how we interact with one another, right? So for example, you know, we speak Turkish in the home, we, we taught our son American Sign Language when he was, you know, before he became, you know, verbal. So this was before the age of one. She, you know, grew up speaking German, you know, and, and so being able to have ways of looking at the world differently. So for example, in, you know, in some languages, there are no pronouns, none, right? It's just mm-hmm. they, them, everything's they, them, right? Some languages, you know, everything has a, you know, everything's a male, a ma- masculine or feminine. And so even that, that sort of aspect of appreciating the world, then all of a sudden, when we start having this focus in cultural identity, gender identity, and, and being able to look at the world in, in you know, more, more uh, 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 ways that, that we haven't maybe thought of before, it influences how we look at it. So if you come from a language or you speak a language that doesn't have pronouns, for you, it's a n- non-issue. You're like, well, I, I, don't, I don't understand sort of why, why this is, I mean, I understand sort of the concept, but for me, I, I, it's, it's very easy to say they, them, because that's how, what we say anyway in, in our language, you know, versus uh, when you have a, an institutionalized mistrust of a system, right? Mm-hmm. And really getting into sort of the darker, grittier things, especially in the history of this country, of not being able to then even look at somebody and say, listen, I know you're here to help me, but I don't trust you. And I don't trust anything that, that you stand 
stand for or the entire institutions that you stand for, specifically healthcare, specifically, uh, you know, safety and, and, and sort of governance structures. And, you know, these are broad sort of strokes of, of the, the paintbrush right. that I'm giving, but really to be able to understand then the fears and, and sort of the consequences of what happens, not only intergenerationally, but in that given time. So that you've got a, a point in time where somebody has all the stuff that they were taught or modeled, and then what they're bringing to, to the table, either in the workplace, in a relationship, or when they're you know out, out in their community. And so, so for us to be able to then say, and Doug said this earlier, the concept of uh, like microaggressions and triggers, right? The ability to then say, what is it sort of that in my interacting with folks that uh, uh, makes me think about something, let's let's call it, right? And then why, why am I thinking this certain way to then say, how does this tie into my culture, my heritage, my language, my religion, and, and sort of the way that I look at the world. And so those were pieces that were critical for us, especially during the pandemic when we started putting this, this book together to be able to then say, where are the things that that we're very similar, you know, as just as humanity and people? And, and Duga mentioned the validation piece, and I love being validated. You know, that validation piece, like critical, you know, to, to things like love and warmth and safety and security and 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 the other. And then where are sort of the differences, and how can we bridge that just by the nature of just who we are, how we take care of our you know selves, but also our, our patients, and and the way we want to model that for our kid and our, our kids' generation to say. How can you talk about really difficult conversations without, you know, with acknowledging sort of the sensitivities, but also saying, this is really challenging. Things like guilt and loss and 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 death and and sort of the the inability to to understand sort of the other in a way that's destigmatizing, but more importantly, something that can be familiar enough so we can say, hey, let's talk about this in a you know safe space. Then to be able to then say, okay, what are the things that you need? Because I I I, I might think I know you, right? To, to your point about the the other daughter or the family member. But you almost certainly don't, and you don't. You don't entirely know the other. The other, and so the, the, this sort of and the writing prompts and and the way that we we talk with folks is really to be able to appreciate that you know invitation and that humility into the other, the differences, be it culture and 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 sort of other elements of of the person. And so, yeah, it's 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 not easy though. Yeah, not easy at all. <laughs> It's also important to remember that these cultural discourse and these traditions um, come from what was available then. So uh, any decision that we make, uh, any belief system that we have is always um, from that moment that we're in and what's available and what information we have in that very moment. So it's important to remember that, you know, humans, we evolve. So things change and move. And, you know, as we are, um, you know, growing, and changing, it's important to be able to let go of certain belief systems or certain practices or traditions that don't make sense anymore, don't work anymore. So uh, you're not really bound, like it's you're not really bound by the, your culture. It's it should never be something that. Um, confines you to something it will always we always want more liberation more freedom more expression and uh so the the kind of feeling of i can choose what what things uh, narratives i want to keep from my culture and what needs to go and what i can replace it with from other cultures that's Mm -hmm. why you know being exposed to diversity is so important because you might find something that works for you so much better from a different culture and you can adapt that and make your own Mm -hmm. yes gosh there's there's so much (laughs) there that both of you shared thank you for that so the other parts of this book are so many things that I that I really am grateful for is these practices, the journaling and other invitations that that you share that it doesn't have to just be writing. It can be art, it can be psychodrama, it can be yoga, movement. These practices, when we think about it from a cultural lens of the bigger human race, are so indigenous to who we are as human beings and and ancient practices, primitive practices that we know in our in our DNA. And so I love the reminders of getting back into all of these practices as as a way to to heal. And so on that note, I would love if you could just wrap us up with telling us what do you envision for the future, especially for relationships. 
one thing that I'm noticing when it comes to relationships and parenting uh, to kind of bring it back uh, to attachment is that uh, the parenting styles are changing a lot. Uh, so uh, before, I think in our generation, uh, for instance, children were more seen in many cultures, seen as the extension of the parents. And they were kind of just um, pressured into things or they were very set expectations of what their future would look like and things that they would have to, the path that they would have to take in life or maybe follow the path of their parents. And now that I think is shifting, which is really important. So it's an evolution. We're, we're, we're growing and we're more interested in, I think, mostly uh, about getting, know our, to, getting to know our children. So it's more about trying to understand who this child is um, and not imposing your own belief system, not imposing your own identity, but actually allowing for that child to reach their full potential and become who they are meant to be by providing them the solid ground where they can uh, just create their own path. That is happening more and more, I think. Parents are much more in tune with their children. And also uh, emotions. So in the past, many cultures had the idea that, you know, nobody wants to see your emotions, mm -hmm. uh, bottle them up, especially <laughs> boys, they don't cry. Uh, and women also just take a lot of, you know, they, they take on a lot, absorb a lot of uh, things without really expressing, without really using their voice. That is also changing now. Now, uh, I, uh, many parents are able to name the emotions to their children because that we teach our children emotions. Children don't come knowing what the emotions are. They feel all these big things. They don't know what they are. And they also don't know that they're normal. Mm -hmm. So we normalize feelings and we describe it for them. And then we help them uh, regulate and cope with them. And, and also the idea that these emotions pass, that I think is becoming more and more right now in, in parenting. Uh, parents are much more aware of just letting their children be upset, not being so afraid of their children crying, because crying is actually just the way our bodies releases tension. And before, you know, parents were so concerned and it, the motive was more about stopping the crying, but now it's letting, letting it being expressed. And that feels so much healthier and just will lead to much more secure attachment and healthier relationships. Yes, letting it be expressed and being with them in those feelings. Yes, yes I, I think that's a beautiful thing that we all hope to see in, in more parent-child relationships. And yes, thank you for sharing that, Diego. Um, anything to add to that, Yanair? You know, the, the the work that you do, Jen, in the podcast and your audience and, and the sophistication of the of your listeners, right? And and the the mission and the, the the nature of the work that you do is destigmatizing it, allowing for these discussions to occur. And so, you know, adding on to, to what Duga was talking about is in addition to having the the language and the ability to name the emotion and, and have those discussions, it's also being able to uh, feel a little bit more comfortable. We have some ways to go to also reach out for help, right? Be it professional help, be an understanding. And a lot of what we do, you know, talking about is in, in terms of having a truly educated and informed understanding and consent of what you're getting into with a relationship, right? So if I'm going to a therapist or a doctor to be able to then know what I want and what I need, listen to what the you know professional, like, you know, the, the therapist is recommending, but then also incorporating that into what my needs are as well. So I think one of the major shifts also is rather than saying, oh, the doctor's always right, the nurse is always right, the therapist, I'm going to do whatever they say. Most people never did that anyway, but that was sort of the stereotype to now saying, hey, how am I part of this relationship in, in my treatment and my healing journey? And so that's also sort of the other the other piece of this is that you know as therapists as clinicians you know it, it brings me great uh, joy and satisfaction to see people being a lot more open to be, even talk about it and say hey I, I think I need help or I think this person yeah. you know might benefit from help and so that's the other extremely positive and hopeful thing that that we're seeing mm -hmm. yes what a beautiful note of hope to end our conversation on today that has been so rich. And like I said, this book is such a gift to the world and, and we'll be sure to, to link it in our show notes. Um, and I'm so grateful for both of you in offering this and offering this conversation. And I look forward to, you know, future ways our paths may cross since we're, we're all out there doing similar work. So thank you both so much for being here. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Yes. My pleasure. Take care. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. And join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. For additional resources and training opportunities, visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of attachment theory. Thank you.